We've been walking through the book of Acts uh, together and uh, just kind of trying to understand who are we as a church in light of who, uh, who the church was in the book of Acts. <clears throat> now, one of the things that, that we're going to be doing is a way for our church to testify or to witness, right? That's one of the big words that we've been doing in Acts is if you'll notice out when you go out the door to the left, there's a thing on VBS. And I would just encourage all of you, this is going to be something all of us as a church are going to get behind. So I don't, I don't know what you do well or what you bring to the table. Um, I think, is it four and five-year-olds I'm teaching? I know I saw Heidi. Or is she, oh, she's not here. Is it four? Hey, I'm going to teach four and five-year-olds. No, that's scary for me. <clears throat> First of all, I couldn't believe they asked me. I sat there going, like, are you talking to me? <laughs> like, oh, ah, four and five-year-olds. Wow, I hope they don't cry when they leave. Um, but we're just going to all dive behind. It's going to be a blast and all of us getting together. But in the book of Acts, it's, a, it's a, a letter, basically, from a guy named Dr. Luke. He was a doctor, medicine doctor. We're going to find out actually today that, that he probably lived in Philippi. It was where he learned medicine. But he's writing this letter to a guy named Theophilus, and he's trying to help him understand just the story from the very beginning in the announcement of the birth of Jesus, all the way to where Paul finally is sitting in jail at the book of Acts. We've already gone through one part of it. In the first part, it's, it's in Acts 1, 1 through 14, in which we see the ascension of Jesus, the exaltation, the, the realization that he truly is King of kings and Lord of lords, and his then empowerment of the 12 to go and to be his witnesses to the ends of the world, to go on a global mission. Then we get into the second part of it, which starts in 115 and goes all the way to Acts 8.3. And it's how now the, the, the Jewish people are brought in and they come to know Jesus as their true Messiah. And in embracing Jesus as their true Messiah, they begin to live out what it's like to be a group of people that are now filled with the Spirit and have experienced the truth of Ezekiel 36.26 and Isaiah 31, or Jeremiah 31.31. Just that now God's Spirit will be living in them so that they might now fulfill the law of God, not externally, but the law written on their hearts so they might testify to the world. And all these people start telling people, no, there really is, the Messiah has come. But then in 8.4, going on to 12.25, they decided to invite the Samaritans and Gentiles to the party. You know like that bad uncle that you're going to invite to your party? And you're like, oh, I hope he doesn't do something stupid. Anytime you invite the bad uncle to the party, things go weird. So they invited the Gentiles in, and one of the first weird things, that some of you are laughing, it's like, oh yeah, Uncle Joe, he's crazy. I tell you, we don't know what we're going to do with him. But suddenly they started going, gosh, what stuff matters and what doesn't matter? They, if you remember last week, we talked about this idea of circumcision. And they came to this point where they realized that the old covenant is done. We don't have to worry about circumcision anymore, but they needed to tell the Gentiles, but the faith that you've come out of too, all of us are exiting that world that we were a part of and we're becoming a part of a new people, this new people of God in which we're designated now, not as what we used to be, but who we are now as God's new creations to announce to the world. And that's basically the essence of Acts 15, 1 through 35. Then we come to this last section that we're going to be going through. It's the fifth section. It's going to start in 1536, and it's going to go all the way to the end of chapter 18. 
It's Paul's second missionary journey. He's going to kick off on a new one. He's going to go now into what's going to become what we know as Europe. They probably didn't see it as Europe at that particular time. It's going to have cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. It's going to have Athens in it. It's also going to have Corinth and Ephesus. There's going to be these cities now that he's going to go to. And everywhere that Paul goes and he announces this message, suddenly these Gentiles start embracing Jesus. But when you come back to verse, chapter 15, verse 35, and if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. We're going to need to start, though, to understand where's Paul at. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk us through this story, but here's going to be kind of my main point. Could you throw that first slide up there? Here's going to be my main point. Is that ministry, or serving Jesus through serving others, is one of the greatest joys in the life of the Christ follower. But this task will always demand sacrifice. Let me say that again. This task will always demand sacrifice. And I'll say this. The moment a church decides they no longer want to sacrifice, you might as well close the doors, shut it, because the glory of the Lord has departed. At the end of the day, it demands sacrifice. Now, we're going to clarify this sacrifice because really at the end of it, when we're all standing in front of Jesus, I doubt we're going to, we're going to it's in any way sit there and go, oh, it's such a deep sacrifice. It's going to be something that at the end of it, when we see it for what it is, it won't be a sacrifice. And no one escapes it. And the greatest sacrifice, the one that will determine all other sacrifices, is the daily choice to forego making a name for myself so that we might make a name for God. And I, when I say daily, I mean daily. And it comes up in the weirdest points, doesn't it? I mean, I've told you before, I think Satan lives on our freeway system. <laughs> and every time I pull onto that, suddenly I do not want to make a name for God because these people have the audacity to come into my lane. How is it that it can slow down, right? It's just weird things that we do. It's a daily ongoing thing. Well, in 1535, Barnabas and Paul, they're hanging there, and, and Paul walks up to Barnabas and says in 1536, hey, I, I, I think we need to go. We need to do a second journey. Well, Barnabas is excited about it. You can throw the map up on it. It's the next one. And I know you can't see this, and I apologize, but really the arrow's pointing to Antioch. They're chilling in Antioch. It's about 49 AD. In other words, we're, we're talking from the moment that the church started, which was probably back around 34 AD. We're about 15 years into this. Isn't that crazy? The book of Acts feels like you just fly by, but it's been about 15 years. Barnabas looks back at Paul and says, yeah, let's go. Let's go revisit. In other words, Paul, Paul's pastoral heart is just coming out and it's going, let's go revisit all those churches. Barnabas is excited about it. And somewhere in there, Barnabas looks at Paul and says, and I've got a great idea. Let's take John Mark. Paul looks at him and he says, uh-uh, I don't want John Mark. Now, that seems so mean. Like, you look at it in Paul and go, Paul, why, why, why are you being so mean? Well, back in 1333, we find out that John Mark had abandoned them. In other words, Paul says, I'm not taking him with us because we could be in the middle of some pretty terrible stuff and I don't have time for somebody to abandon us. And the thing I love about Barnabas, and by the way, we'll never see him again all throughout the book of Acts, Barnabas always believed that every person was redemptive. I guess Paul doesn't always or something, I don't know. But it says they reached a sharp disagreement. Now here's one of the things I love about the Bible. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, they never hide their hero's flaws? 
In this moment, right, we, we, I've always heard people preach this before. No, this argument was a good thing. It was great they argued because then they split up. It's like looking at a married couple and going, oh, it's great you're arguing so you can split up. It makes no sense. Somewhere in there, and to go back to this, there was a sacrifice that was going to be demanded from one or the other, and they weren't willing to pay it, and at the end of it, they split up. This is what I mean. This is back to my main point. Now, in it, I love the fact that God redeems all kinds of decisions. As we read along further, as we go towards verse 41, we're going to start seeing that Paul launches off. You know, Theophilus is wondering, where did this Silas guy come from? Well, Silas gets included into this. Paul says, I want to take this guy. He'd been faithful. He had been at the Jerusalem council last week. Or not last week. From when Christians spoke on it last week. In which now he's like, I've seen it all. And Paul says, look, we need to tell all these churches, Silas, you were there. You need to come along with me to testify to this. So they start walking up. And you can see in the next slide, they start going towards Tarsus. They start going towards Derby, And in fact, it says in there that when they, were, when they were climbing up through there, it would have been a treacherous journey the way that they went around it. But they were going to absolutely edify all the churches that they've been a part of. Well, by the time we finish at the end of chapter 15, in 16 now, we come on this guy named Timothy. You might know him from two books of the Bible. I mean, how cool would it be to have... First Todd and second Todd in the Bible. I mean, it's like, you know, I've been, I, one time when, uh, when Francis wrote Crazy Love, my name was in the acknowledgement section. Man, this is like the Bible. Well, crazy Love's on the edge, don't get me wrong, but I'm kidding. But it's just this thing where this guy is important. So you know Theophilus is going, who's this Timothy cat? Paul comes into, and it says he's up in Lystra, so go on to the next one is that while he's in Lystra, he runs back into Timothy's grandmother and mother who had come to know Jesus Christ. We find that out from 2 Timothy 1. But also, it's probably the place where Timothy had come to know Jesus Christ. While there, something happened. It says in there, he has such a great name, and it says in both, in, in, in both Lystra and also up in Iconium that people trust him, they know him. He's following Jesus, and Paul looks at this young man. In fact, Paul calls him later his son in the faith. And he says, come on, let's go. Now here's the caveat to coming along with Paul. Now just think for a second. You can come with me, but you need to be circumcised. Wow, I was just looking at my calendar, Paul. (laughs) I'm busy these next couple years. You're going to have to find somebody else. Now, this is so weird to me. Why in the world, after this conference that had happened in Jerusalem in Acts 15, did suddenly Paul look and say to him, hey, man, you're going to have to get circumcised. That just seems contrary until you understand Timothy's history. Timothy's father was a Gentile. His mother was a Jew. And we know that through the line of the mother, it was matrimonial, or not matrimonial, that's getting married. What is the mother? That, that word. <clears throat> I might be looking at you, I might be Googling you all through this message, as you can tell. My words are not coming out well. Um, but it runs through the mother's line. Now, the Jewish people would have looked at Timothy and wondered, Timothy, why haven't you been circumcised? And this is what I love. Paul was not trying to get rid of the Jewishness of people. 
that's not what he was doing. He wanted them to understand that circumcision does not save us. And in order to reach the Jewish people, because they would have thought it weird that Timothy was not circumcised, Paul didn't want to put any kind of an obstacle. If you remember back to 1 Corinthians 9, I've done all things by all means so that I might save some. In other words, Timothy, in order for us to do our mission, in order for us to get into the Jewish people, you need to be circumcised, and they circumcised him. Can you imagine being circumcised and then going for a long journey? Well, it says they start going up, and as you follow it on through the particular story up through chapter 16, it says they kept running into something. And who they kept running into, it says, is first of all the Spirit of God and then the Spirit of Jesus. Paul tried to go east, and God said no. Paul tried to go west, God said no. Paul tried to go north, God said no. He looked behind him, it was the ocean, and he said, well, I can't go that way. God, which way do you want me to go? And there was only one way open to the northwest up to Troas. And so Paul began to take that particular journey, and it says by the time he came to Troas, he had hit the ocean, and you know Paul's sitting there going, well, what do I do now? What's so cool about this is by the time God gets him to Troas, then it says he gives him a vision or a dream. Can you go forward to Troas? Sorry, I'm not doing my job. He has a dream. In which in it, there's this Macedonian man, and people have always tried to say, who's that Macedonian man? But he kept saying to them, come over to us. In fact, he uses this word of rescue or salvation. We need you. In 16.10 then, it says he woke up, he tells the other guys, and for the first time down in 16.10, we see this word, we. Now, the question I started asking myself was, is why does he say we? I believe it's because it's the first time where Luke says, here's where I came in the story. See, probably Luke would have been from that area, Philippi. That was where the med school was. And so as he comes into it, he says, so Paul's talking to us, and I joined them in Troas. And we all looked at each other and said, yeah, we're supposed to go across. So they crossed the ocean, and if you look where the next dot goes, they come to Neapolis. The journey only took two days, and I think what's so beautiful about this is, watch this, is that everything that God calls us to do, he always provides what we need to be able to accomplish it. He gives the people and the circumstances. It's not always easy, but God along the way, you can just see Paul trusting him and God providing as they go along. It says they get to Neapolis, and they make the decision, it's time to go to Philippi. You know Luke at that point probably going, that's where I went to med school. I can show you where all the great restaurants are. Come on, let's go. It's going to be awesome. They get up to Philippi. One of the first things that happens when you look down in chapter 16 is that Paul, it says they just came in, kind of in in verse 12-ish area in there, and, and he just started looking around. It says they were there for many days, and I always wondered what was he doing, and I think in one part he was just trying to get the feel. What is this Philippi like? And then it says on a Sabbath, which Paul always did, he went out to go begin looking for the Jewish people. Well, in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. In order for there to be a synagogue, there had to be 10 Jewish men, and there were not 10 Jewish men. But something that started back in the time of Babylon is, is wherever there wasn't that, they would always have a place of prayer next to a river so that they could do various ceremonial washings where they would repent of sin. And so he decided, well, there must be a place where the Jewish people meet. And so he goes down to the river, and he gets down there and finds these women down worshiping. And it says 
then he sat basically and he waited. At some point they must have looked at him and you know this, that Paul was a Pharisee so they wanted him to teach and I just can imagine Paul sitting there going, hey, let's wrap this up. I got something to say. And suddenly they looked at him and said, oh, you must be a teacher. Can you teach us? And it said Paul began to teach and he began to tell them about this Messiah. And it said they listened and the idea was this lady named Lydia, she just listened and she listened and she listened. And one of my favorite parts in that whole section is that it says then suddenly the Lord opened her heart to what Paul was saying and she believed. Right in front of Paul, right next to the river. I'm always like, I want to lead somebody next to the river. You know what I mean? It's just like right next to the river. Here she is. She comes to know Jesus Christ. It makes sense. And we have our first person that's come to know Jesus in Europe. By the way, most of you sitting here should be very thankful because I look around and I see a lot of white faces. Thank God he went to Europe. It says she went and got all of her household. She was wealthy. What's that mean? She, she, she dealt in, in, in the color purple. To deal in the color purple meant that you were a wealthy person. And she went and got all her household. And I don't know what she did. She was probably a widow. I don't know if she looked at her son-in-law and her daughter and all her grandkids and said, you don't have a choice. You've got to come hear this dude or I'm going to fire you from your job. I don't know what she did. But they all came and they began to hear the message. And it said her whole household embraced Jesus and they were baptized in that moment. What was so cool about that, and I'm just imagining going, Paul going, this is going to be great. Philippi is awesome. They had a base of operation in this wealthy woman's house. Everything was going great. And it says Paul then began to, to do ministry. And as he's doing ministry, it says one day he's walking through the town of Philippi. And as he's walking through the town of Philippi, all of a sudden this woman with the spirit of Python, I know that sounds weird, but she had divination. She was like the Oracle of Delphi. She, could, she was a fortune teller. Everywhere that Paul went for many days, it tells us, she's sitting there screaming at the top of her lungs. This dude here, he's, he's associated with the God Most High. He's the one who's going to bring the message of salvation. Now it says Paul at first just let her trail behind. You know, every once in a while he wanted to turn around and go, woman, shh. But then he realized it's a woman. You don't do that to a woman. I'm kidding. Just love me. But eventually Paul started to realize something. The God most high that she was speaking about was not Yahweh, was not the God of the Bible, but probably Zeus. He suddenly realized that people think he's just a representative of Zeus. And so he turns around and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it says this spirit of divination comes out of her. And again, aren't you just thinking, this is awesome. Lydia comes to know Jesus. Her household comes to know Jesus. Paul's casting out the spirits of divination. Everything's going great. And then we come to the word, but. It says, but her owners. She was a slave. They had purchased her. It didn't matter if somebody was rich or poor, everyone would come to her and they would give her money and her masters then would get money. And let me tell you something, one of the fastest ways to get everybody fired up is to mess with their money. 
Now, these guys were going to have nothing of it. It says they seized him and dragged he and Silas. Now imagine this. They're dragging him through the town, and it says they brought them to the magistrates who would have been at the Bema, the, the seat that sometimes you'll hear about in the Bible that is going to be this experience of judgment. And they put him in front of the magistrates, and they weren't going to come to the magistrates and say, hey, this Paul guy is costing us money because there was no judgment for that. Instead, they said, basically, this dude right here is telling the people that Roman life is not worth it, and that not only that, they're going to cause an uproar. And they just began working on it. Paul's not saying a word. Finally, it says the crowd got behind it. When the crowd starts getting behind it, you know, watch out. And the magistrates decide what we're going to do is is we're going to beat these guys and then we're going to put them in jail, the most secure part of the jail. And you've got to be thinking, Paul's going, what in the world is going on? Man, just the other day, Lydia comes through. Jesus, I'm casting the spirit divination out. What in the world? And you know as he's getting beaten with those rods over and over and over again, he's wondering, God, what are you doing? You ever had those moments? Like, put the humanness of Paul in here for a second. God, what are you doing? Things were going so good. This can't be your will. Says they handed him over to a jailer. They told him to put him in the most secure part of the prison. So they took Paul and Silas and put him in the very center of the prison. It says they put him in stocks. To put someone in stocks would have been to put them in a massively uncomfortable position. And so there's Paul with open wounds, dried blood, sitting there in a very uncomfortable position. And you know in the back of his head he's going, God, what? But Paul does something. It says around midnight, he starts to sing psalms of prayer. Who does that? Man, if that happened in Christianity in the United States, we'd be like, call my lawyer. Get my lawyer. There's no time for prayer. Get my lawyer. Get picket signs. Let them know how angry we are. What does Paul do? He starts to sing, he and Silas. And the fun part about it is, is it says the prisoners were listening. How incredible would that have been? Who's the goober in the middle of the jail that's singing praises? I saw him coming in. He looked awful. And here's Paul singing praises of Psalm, extolling God, trusting in God's deliverance. And you know those prisoners sitting there going, what in the world? And then it happened. A great earthquake. (laughs) You would think people would learn this jail thing doesn't work for God's people in Acts. They should be sending letters out going, hey, yeah, the jail thing, yeah, don't put them in jail. Find a completely other way to do this. This isn't working. It says the jail was so violent that the doors came off their hinges and their chains came out of the wall. It says then the jailer ran out, and this jailer who would have been a slave of the city, who was the jailer at that time, he then realized that with the doors wide open and all the prisoners fleeing, he was a dead man. In fact, what he would have experienced probably was crucifixion. And we've heard enough about crucifixion to know it would have been awful. And it says in that moment, he decides the best thing that I can do is I can kill myself. And then through the jail comes this voice of Paul. Hey, homie, don't do that. Don't kill yourself. 
were all here. Now, why were they all there? I think the prisoners were still like, uh, sing psalms, bloody, beaten up, earthquake. I ain't going nowhere. I'm staying with him. All the people were still in the jail, and the guy goes, he gets the other slaves with him. He's like, come here, grab the torches. They go in with the torches, and he realizes that everybody's present and accounted for, and the first words out of his mouth was, what must I do to be saved? Pretty cool evangelistic tool. Man, God, you're smart. Now, what he was thinking in his head would have been very Roman or Greek at that time. What sacrifice must I bring to a God? What animal must I bring to this particular God to be saved? What things must I do to, to, to somehow appease this God that we've wronged? And I love Paul's statement. It's not about appeasing that God. We don't appease the God that created a universe that is billions of light years apart, that has stars that burn at 250,000 degrees Fahrenheit. How do you appease that God? We can't appease that God. And he begins to say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and all your household, and you will be saved. It's not what you do, it's what he's done. Trembling, somewhere in there, it says the man went and got all of his household. You gotta hear this guy. And it says his whole household, which wouldn't have been probably wives or kids, it would have just been a bunch of slaves. It says they hear the message and they get baptized. On one level, you know now Paul's going, oh, this is awesome. Okay, God, that makes sense now. But as they begin to bandage Paul up, it says they have a big feast together, and as they have this feast together, suddenly into it comes a group of other guards saying, hey, the magistrates have decided Paul can go. The jailer looks at him and says, Paul, Paul, you can go. You can go in peace, in fact, is the word. They've let you go. Now, you would think at this point, Paul would have said, okay, dude, Silas, grab our things. Let's bail on to Berea. I bet you they're nicer in Berea than they are now. Let's go. Paul says, no. He says, do you understand who you've beaten? You've beaten Roman citizens. Now, why didn't he say that at first? Have you ever thought that? Like, why didn't off the very beginning, before they start beating him, go, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Now, Roman citizenship would have been like American citizenship. Whenever Americans are abroad, it's like, do you understand who I am? I can sing the Star Spangled Banner backwards. That's how American I am. There was a pride. This idea that somehow we are the ones that are the epitome of the world. To claim citizenship meant you don't mess with me. Why did he claim it then and not before? I think here's the answer. Because he could have claimed it. I think he knew that the moment that he claimed his citizenship, they would have taken him and ushered him off for a trial. He would have been taken out of Philippi, and instead of getting ushered out of town, he received the beatings so that he could stay there and nurture the church. That's a pastor. But now all of a sudden he realized that if he slinks out of town, this young church is going to have a bad name. He says, you go get the magistrates and tell them, you need to walk me out of town. (laughs) The magistrates hear this and they don't want to get in trouble because they're worried Paul might go to Thessalonica. 
And it says they came and they walked him out of town. Now think about this. The day before he got beaten and now he's the victor. As they walk him out of town, you know all the Christians are like, that's my shepherd. He couldn't leave with a bad name. He claimed his citizenship not for himself, but for the name of Jesus, for those people that were there. He wasn't going to slink out of town. And not only that, but he says, I will leave, but before I go, you're going to take me to see Lydia in verse 40. He goes over, now just think for a second. This goes back to my main point on ministry. As Paul had gone through all that, as he's standing in Lydia's house, he's going to see Lydia and all of her household, the jailer, all the other slaves, and you know at the end of it, he must have thought, look at God. It would have been the joy of ministry. But it was the joy of ministry that came at great cost. Now the question I want to ask, and if you can throw that up there. I hope you can throw it up there. There we go. If this is where we're going to go, then this is the question I want to ask. Look at this next one. How did Paul do it? You ever wondered that? How did Paul know what to do and how to do it and how to work through these various things? How did he go through what he went through? How did he make the decisions that he was trying to make? How was it that at the end of it, even though he started off not making a great name for God and his whole thing with Barnabas, how at the end did Paul do it? Everything that I make decisions on, I tend to screw up, I tend to mess up, I tend to do the wrong things. How did Paul do that? And one of the guys in sermon prep this week said, I think you need to answer that question by putting Romans 12 over the top of it to explain it. Now watch what I want to do. Go to Romans 12. Let me show you how Paul made these decisions because I believe that not only Paul could make those decisions, but I believe you all can make those same decisions. Romans 12, and look at verse 1. Romans 12. How did Paul, now here's the question we're going to ask. If we really want to make a name for God, if we want to make these decisions that make a name for God, then how did Paul do it? Romans was written probably about five years after he finished this particular missionary journey. And so it would have been the exact way in which he thought through this. Now here's the first thing Paul says. Now look down in there. He says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here's the first thing you got to know about decision making. I have to know the mercies. See that word therefore? Look down at your text. When we see the word therefore in the text, what question do we ask? What's the therefore? Therefore. The therefore is there because of everything that Paul has written now in the book of Romans. It has everything to do with his opening statement that says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God for it is the power of God unto salvation both for the Jew and the Greek. And he says, and not only that, but this message does not come by a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. And then it goes off and begins to tell the story of the fact that every single person from the top of their heads to the bottom of their toes is in desperate need of rescue from God. Every one of us in here, before we know Jesus, and if you're someone in here that doesn't know Jesus, you need to understand this. We were or we are in desperate need of rescue. 
Romans 3, 9 through 20, we walks it through and his whole point is from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes, I am in desperation for the, for the rescue of God. Verse 321, there's a but, except I like this but. I, no, I like the but. Yes, come with me. But, and he begins to talk about Jesus. You're right, this law couldn't provide it. And so instead, God's sending his son, this righteousness to you. And in coming, you don't receive it by any other way other than chapter four, by faith like Abraham received it. You don't have to make sacrifices and try to appease this God. This God instead is one who's done it all. Now I just come to him by faith, believing Chapter 5, the very beginning, I used to be at war with this God. I used to be an enemy of God. But while I was still a sinner, can you believe it? Christ died for me. He said, not only that, you used to be in the old Adam, but now you can be in this new Adam, in Jesus Christ. And all of us in here that know Jesus, there was a point at which we came to know him and embrace that reality, and forever we were rescued by God. Then we come to God and we're like, yeah, God, but I've come to you and I still make dumb decisions. Yeah, you're right. Because it depends who you're a slave to. Either you're a slave to the flesh or to the spirit. In other words, in this gigantic story of God, I've got to understand what kind of a slave I am. I'm either going to be a slave to God or a slave to my flesh. And in fact, in chapter 7, I so relate to Paul when he says, the things that I, I wish I would do, I don't do. The things I do do, I wish I didn't do. Who will save me from this body of death? And he says, praise God. He is the one that can do this. Why chapter 8, 1? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of God is placed within us, it says, and by which now we can cry out and call him Abba, Father, provided that we suffer with him. We like to take that little part out. I don't want to sacrifice. Then you don't want to walk with Jesus. And he says not only that, but he gets to the very end of it, 8, 38 through 39. This love is so great that not even you yourself can separate you from it. Have you ever noticed we as Christians get bored with that? I think we're supposed to tell ourselves over and over, these were the mercies of God. The Jewish people forgot that, verses chapters 9 through 11. And when Paul gets done with it, go with me there real quick. At the very end, Romans 11. I should probably open my Bible. That would be a healthy thing. Romans 11, watch what he does with this. Okay, I found it finally. Verse 33, when Paul gets all done, he says, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. In other words, I'm blown away what I just wrote. There's this side of us being a Christian that we have to renew our passion for the mercies of God every single day. The moment I get bored with God's mercies, I am in the greatest danger possible of stepping off into displeasing God and making a name for myself. People always wonder, why do I read my Bible every day? I read my Bible every day to be reminded of the mercies of God. 
I'm reminded of this God that, that exists eternal, that's it's an unapproachable light, but yet by his grace dipped down through the person of Jesus and drew us to himself. I sit there and in those moments, and I get bored too, so I'm confessing to you, but I just want to sit there until I go, God, remind me, like the church at Ephesus, of my need, of my first love. Paul just says, that's where it starts. My sacrifice does not start by doing something. My sacrifice starts by being blown away by something. And what happens then is, is the moment I see the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field, I'm willing to sell everything. I don't care what, because I believe it's worth it. That's why we spend time in the word and spend time hearing messages and spend time in prayer. God, I just want to know you. But then Paul comes to it. After being blown away by it, that's the first thing. He says, now here's the reality though. If you want to make the decisions that I've been making, if you want to make the decisions that make a name for God, the next thing you have to do is to become a sacrifice. In other words, something has to die. Now the question is, what has to die? Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ now who lives in me. See, that's the part about the sacrifice. Here's the crazy thing, is that you're supposed to be a living sacrifice. Ever thought about that? How in the world do I become an alive, dead thing? It's a miracle. As Todd dies, Christ lives. The more you live, the less Christ is alive in your life. The more you die, the more Christ is alive in your life. It spoke of like Old Testament sacrifices. It was bringing this lamb to God, you know, and they would cut its throat and the lamb would go bad no more. And it's, it's this ongoing reality in our lives that we're supposed to understand that Paul wants us to get in order to make the decisions day, daily, moment by moment, Todd has to die. And in fact, when you get to like Roman, or 1 Corinthians 6, you've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. You are dead. And by the way, I am so glad the old Todd is dead. <laughs> we're hoping the rest of you dies too. <laughs> not, not, no, not that way, but gosh, I need to quit ad-libbing. Okay. But when that happens, all of a sudden, conflict takes place. Because in one way, it's easy on me for me to come to Christ and go, yeah, I don't like the old Todd. He's made bad decisions in a bad spot. God, would I die? But it's hard for our dreams and desires to die, isn't it? And it can be anything. Man, after I came to know Jesus Christ, the love of my life was being a track athlete. I remember coming, this guy telling me after I come to know Jesus, now that you've come to know Jesus, just imagine how incredible of a runner you're going to be. As if God's in heaven going, that's right, I'm going to make Todd bionic. That's what we're going to do. I entered into a series of injuries with which I never, ever recovered from in college, and I would sit there many times going, God, what are you doing? I remember being in Nebraska one time and him saying, God, or Todd, woof, Todd, I didn't call you to turn left. I called you to speak on my behalf. By the way, in, le- in track, you always turn left, just so you know. I didn't call you to run. I called you to be a shepherd. 
You had these dreams about marriage, these dreams about kids. I remember my wife and I had just got married and we're thinking, we're going to have little ones like us. And the rest of the world went, oh no. <laughs> and when we found out we couldn't have children, that messes with your dreams and desires, doesn't it? But God said, I didn't design you to have your biological children. We do not want your genetic material going on. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I've called you to go get other kids that are just as much yours through adoption. It can be anything. It's, it's even down to the simplest stuff of when I go home at night. I have images of walking through my door and my children saying, Dear Father, <laughs> how might we serve thee? Come hither, Father, sit on thine couch while we bring thee the bounty of the feast that Mother has been presenting. But when you go through that door, the job is not to be served, but to serve. Jesus even shatters our dreams in the short term, doesn't he? In it, he calls it a holy sacrifice. That's the next word. Holy means that I am no longer set apart for me and my name, but I'm set apart for him and his name. Now everything about my life is learning the joys of being set apart for him. But not only that, the next word acceptable means is that God doesn't accept anything that isn't the best. He doesn't want our leftovers, Malachi 1. He doesn't want us to bring the blind lambs and the smoking lambs and the whatever else lambs. He said, if you won't give them to your governor, don't give them to me. What does that mean? Is that when God says that I want you, he means all of you. It's the daily process of coming to him and realizing he's not after anything but all of me. Oftentimes what we do is we give God like our worship and we give him our morality, then we give him 10%. There you go, Father. Do what you can with that amount. And God says, no, I have everything. That wife you have is not your wife. She's mine. I've only entrusted her to you for a short time. Those kids are not your kids. They're mine. That job you have is not yours. It's mine. That car you have is not yours. It's mine. And the beauty of what happens is, is that as I come to him now and say, God, they are all yours. Look at that next word in Romans 12.1. This is your spiritual service of worship. That's worship. Worship isn't just coming into a room and singing a bunch of songs together. In fact, the worship that God accepts, in the Old Testament you'll even see this, he's like, I'm sick of you going through the motions. I'm sick of your sacrifices and all your little stuff and coming in. He said, you might as well just shut the door. What I'm really after is I'm after you. I'm not after those things. And that, Paul says, is your reasonable service of worship. This is what we bring to God every day. And if we're ever going to make decisions that glorify God, like we're talking about, that end up making a name for him, this is what he means when he says we must die. Now, you know all along the way in the book of Acts, Paul is going, really, God? God, what are you doing? What in the world? Can I really trust you with this? And in the end, he just kept following God. God, wherever you want, I will go. And God kept guiding. It wasn't mystical. There was mystery to it. 
it flowed in and through this relationship that Paul had with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the empowerment of the Spirit. But I think if Paul were standing here today, he would say to us all here, it wasn't just me. You too can have this. Every last one of us that has the Spirit of God in here, we can be empowered to make decisions that honor Jesus Christ. But in chapter or verse 2 then, he says, but understand this, it cannot be from this standpoint You cannot make the decisions the world would make. See, when I think about Paul in Acts 16, you know the moment he walked up on just a few women sitting there that most Jewish men would have been like, this is all God, a group of Jewish women. That's it. Part of him would have been as this this spirit lady would have been following behind him and he's saying to him, God, seriously? Probably in him he wanted to swat at her or something. I don't know. As the guys are beating him, he's probably looking at God and thinking to himself, God, really? When the doors opened, the world would have said, run away, run. The moment that all of a sudden the people came in and he claimed his rights, they would have been, shh, Paul, don't say anything. That's how the world thinks. We are different. We are completely different. We don't think like the world thinks. We think now from a biblical wisdom standpoint, Paul says that idea of being conformed means to be pressed into its mold, a a cheap knockoff. We're not pressed into that. Instead, he says, we say no to that, but something begins to happen in our decision-making process that he's going to say next. Do not be conformed, he says, but listen to him. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love this. The active part of this has everything to do with the first part of chapter, or verse one and the first part of verse two. We are actively coming to God in those particular ways, but then here's what starts to happen. There is a mystery that takes place by which I cannot understand where the spirit of God through the word of God and the people of God and the time that God has with us, he begins to make my thinking different. Oh, thank God. The more that I come to him in that way and trust on him in that way, he begins to give me, 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of Christ so that I can think like Jesus thought and act like Jesus taught. I can literally, 1 Corinthians 2.6-16, I can understand in the way that God wants me to the mind of God. That's crazy to me. I can make decisions. As the word of God comes into my life, the people of God, I can make the decisions that God wants me to, but listen, it doesn't come to that until first a big thing happens where I start to understand God's mercies, I start to understand that I no longer live for myself but for him, and I no longer live for a world that's headed by Satan. If those three things don't take place, you should never expect God to reveal his will to you. In fact, usually we only want the will of God when all hell breaks loose, don't we? But Paul says it's every day. And when I begin to have my mind transformed, he says, then you'll be able to understand God's will. You begin to live like God's called you to live. Think like God's called you to think. You can be like Paul and make the decisions that are supposed to be made. 
See, I always hear so often people saying, you know, young people in their 20s, they just cannot make decisions. I'm going to teach them how to make decisions. If you want to teach them how to make decisions, then you help them fall in love with the God of the universe, submit their life to him, tell the world no, and then you watch them make correct decisions. Don't you dare think that you're the one that can teach them how to make decisions. That's the job of God, working through you and the word of God. And he says it's good. It's pleasing. It's perfect. Imagine Paul standing there in verse 40 of chapter 16, looking over these people that have just embraced Jesus and realizing this is what ministry is about. The sacrifice was all worth it. So what do we do with this? As you go out this week, I think there's there's basically three things this text is calling us to do so that we might make decisions too like God calls us to, that we might make a name for him. Number one, between you and the people of God, to open the word and just fall in love with Jesus again and again and again. Gosh. That's our job, just to fall in love with Jesus just to be blown away by him again. And you might be looking at me going, Todd, I don't even know if I want to want to fall in love with Jesus again. Then ask God, God, would you please help me to fall in love with you again? Don't walk out of here and beat yourself up. Go talk to God. Todd, I haven't been in my Bible for the longest time. Then you know what? Today is the best day that there could be for any of you in here to say, you know what? I'm going to be back in the Word just knowing this God again that he's called me to. I'm going to get blown away by the mercies of God. I say also what we need to do is we need to put ourselves in front of God and say, God, where have I not died like I need to die? Be careful praying that. I've always found when you ask, God will show you. And sometimes he shows you in ways that you never expected. But in it, it's just placing ourselves in front of that God. I think it's asking the question out of what it means to, to say no to the world where have you bought into the world and its mentality? Asking God that. God, where do you see that I'm allowing the world to enter into my life to shape me into its mold? God, would you show me where that is so that I might get rid of that in my life? Maybe even some of you are sitting here right now going, I can tell you exactly where it is and you're putting off repenting and coming to God and allowing the gospel to do it. And I would say today is the perfect day to deal with whatever sin is hindering your walk with Jesus Christ. You can come to the prayer room. And here's the last thing. And then just enjoy God changing your thinking. Enjoy as he gives you all kinds of new ways of looking at this world and at people. And don't quit. Stay in. Does that make sense? It does, Todd. <laughs> hey, why don't you shut up right now? I love you guys. I want a church that loves Jesus and passionate about him. I want a church that we're willing to sacrifice whatever God's called us to sacrifice. I want to be in a church that we're no longer being shaped by how the world tells us to. I want to be in a church where our thinking gets transformed so that we might know what God calls us to do. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in real life, amen? All right, Father, thank you so much for today.
Give us grace, Father. In your precious name we pray. Amen.